Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. We'll, we'll actually pick up the reading in the very last verse of chapter 31. Uh, but we're going to read through chapter 32 up to verse 47. And lengthy, lengthy reading this morning uh, as we look at the song of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams, of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat, kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. 
They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chosen a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in whom they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives for the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Well, as we think about this song, 
I'm going to ask a question as we get started. Why do we sing? Why do Christians sing? Now, singing is not something unique to us as Christians, but it is something that certainly marks us, sets us apart. We're not the only people in the world who, who write music or write poetry, but no other group of people gathers together to sing the way that we do. No other group of people has been so thoroughly formed by song. Songs we sing shape us. Incidentally, that's why it's really important um, that we sing the right songs. That we sing songs reflective of the truth that God has revealed to us. But think about it. Even today, millions of Christians around the world will come together and among other things, they will sing. And then next Sunday, we'll come together and do it again. And then again. And then again. Until one day the trumpet sounds and an even better song will be sung. No, no mistake that the church is a musical people. I mean, think about it, many of the, the, the turning points, many of the significant moments in redemptive history are accompanied by singing. Of when God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea, the people sang with tambourines and danced along the shoreline. And, and now, here they are at another pivotal moment on the plains of Moab, just, just before going into the promised land, and another song is sung. The song of Moses here in Deuteronomy 32 not only serves as a lyrical summary of Israel's past and a prophetic preview of Israel's rebellion, ruin, and restoration. It, it also, I hope we'll see today, it also brings us to the heart of the gospel. As it gathers up all of the sermons Moses has preached on the plains of Moab and transposes them into a higher register as it proclaims the name of the Lord. That is what this song is about, according to verse 4. This song proclaims the name above every name. It proclaims the name of the Lord by reciting his perfections and his just and gracious ways. And so here we, we, we should say, before we get into the content of the song itself, yet yeah, preaching is important, but so is singing. Right? Preaching, reading, teaching, proclaiming the word of God is absolutely fundamental, but so is song. God's word is meant to be sung. The gospel must be sung. The gospel has not truly come home to our hearts unless it makes us want to sing. And we learn from the song of Moses that the Lord himself is our song. Accordingly, I want us to take a look at the song of Moses. I'm sure you picked up on this by the reading. It's a lengthy song, so we can't cover all of the details, but what I want to do is try to reflect upon three themes, three major themes that we find in the song of Moses. You can find them 
towards the back of your bulletin. Um, first, uh, once again, if you've been with us, this will sound familiar, the call to listen and live. And second, <coughs> uh, the contrast between divine faithfulness on the one hand and the forgetfulness of God's people on the other. And then third, we'll consider the coming together of divine uh, vengeance and vindication. The first thing to notice is how our passage begins and ends, in other words, is bookended by a call to listen and live. The, the intro to the song, as well as the concluding words after the song, make this basic point. Listen and live. And if you've been with us, you know this is, this is the heart of the message of the book of Deuteronomy. Listen and live. Hear, O Israel, these are the words. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen and live. <laughs> and in verses 1 through 4, Moses poetically describes how God's word is like, like a gentle rain uh, that brings refreshment and, and new life. And when he finishes singing, he concludes in verse 47 by insisting that God's word is no empty word for you. He says, it is your very life. And it is your very life because of the Lord whose word it is. So the call to listen and live envelops this song, envelops this entire book. And recognizing that will help us make sense of the rest of this song. Because I, I think it would be easy to get lost in some of the details of this song. But if you understand that the theme of this song is the greatness of God, the name of the Lord enveloped by this call to listen and live, well then, you have your bearings to make sense of the song. Because despite all of the fierce warnings and dire predictions of this song, it is not meant to make anyone despair. It is not meant to make anyone lose hope. If you heard all of the language of covenant curse taken right out of Deuteronomy 28... Covenant curse and judgment. Remember that this song is a call to listen and live. Right? The dire predictions were not a call to give up hope, but to take to heart all of God's word, which contains both promises and warnings. And so this is, this is uh, some have called this a catechetical canticle, right? a catechetical song, a song that is meant to teach and its teaching is fundamentally about the name of the Lord, which gives life when we listen and learn, when we cling to the word. And this brings us to the next theme of the song, the contrast between God's faithfulness and the people's forgetfulness. I wonder if you've ever noticed how often scripture does this, how often it contrasts the faithfulness of God on the one hand with the fickleness and forgetfulness of his people on the other. Now, that stings a bit. Because 
it comes close to home. But you have to appreciate the honesty of Scripture. Look at the description of God in verse 4 with me. The rock whose work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now, that poetic description of God is meant to highlight the, the stability, uh, the dependability, the fidelity and impeccability of God. It also stands in direct contrast with the following description of God's people. Moses goes on to say in verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they're blemished. They are, they are a crooked and twisted generation. And what follows throughout this central section of the song is a series of contrasts and comparisons between the perfections of God and the perversions of the people. Although the song of Moses sings of a God who spares no expense in lavishing his people with every imaginable blessing and advantage, it simultaneously laments our perverse ingratitude. I think you could sum up the central section of this song with words like grace and ingratitude. Faithfulness, unfaithfulness. Blessing and betrayal. That's what's being sung in this central section. As Moses declares in, in verse 15 and on, in spite of all of God's abundant fatherly care, guiding and providing, in spite of God's new creative work, you might say, that's what the imagery of the eagle with its wings fluttering over the people. It's hearkening back to creation when the spirit hovered over the new, the new creation. And as God essentially created a people out of nothing, out of Abraham and Sarah, who were as good as dead. In spite of being the Lord's chosen portion and, and heritage, in spite of God bringing them out of bondage and slavery, in spite of the Lord's tender care and protection and provision in the wilderness, in spite of God uh, guiding them, in spite of the provision of honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, milk from the flock, the finest wheat and foaming wine in spite of God giving them a good and spacious land and dwelling in their midst. See what, see what he's doing? <laughs> in spite of God's unmerited grace, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. That's the stunning contrast that we are confronted with in verse 15. Right after reciting grace upon grace, we read, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Now, <clears throat> the term Jeshurun to describe God's people is soaked with irony <laughs> because the name Jeshurun literally means straight. And Moses just finished calling God's people crooked and twisted. You see what, he, you see what he's saying? The, the crooked one, who's called straight, grew fat and kicked. And really, I think the most disturbing thing about this is that our crooked and twisted hearts are never more prone to wonder and to forget God than when we have been richly blessed by him. 
You see that in this passage? That is, that is really the most twisted thing of all here. When, when we've drunk the fat of the land and feasted on God's blessings, Moses is saying that's when we're most likely to forget God and turn to no gods, to idols. It's true for Israel, but it's true for us too, isn't it? Don't, don't ever forget what the world was like when we first as a people turned our backs on God for the very first time. Remember the way the world was in the beginning. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden of abundance. They surrounded by the abundance of all things. There was no shortage of fruit to be enjoyed when they stretched out their hands to take the one thing that was off limits. In the beginning, we had, we had broad an extensive freedom under God's lavish care. Old Testament commentator Bruce Waltke says the Garden of Eden was nothing less than paradise. And so if humanity fails in this ideal setting, then there's no hope for humanity to keep the faith anywhere else. See, in contrast to you know, popular sociological thinking, which says, that the way to fix humanity's problems is simply to improve their environment. The reality is, now it's not, I'm not saying that's not important, but the reality is that humanity rebelled in the perfect environment. And Sodom and Gomorrah, referenced in this song, Sodom and Gomorrah, where humanity sunk down to the lowest levels of perversity and violence, was also a place of abundance. Genesis 13, I think it's verse 10, says that Sodom and Gomorrah were like the garden of the Lord. How often do we fool ourselves into thinking that our greatest problem is, is merely external to us? Matter of location, matter of circumstances, that our problem is just you know, external to us. We tell ourselves, if we could just, if we just create an ideal environment, then everything would be fine. Everything would be okay. Our problems would, would disappear. I wonder if you've ever told yourself, you know, if I could just create these circumstances, then, then my heart would be content. Then everything would be fine. Give me what I want and everything will be good. If I could just fill in the blank, if I could just get that house, if I could just have that kind of marriage, if I could just have that dream job, if I could just have those kind of kids then my life would be all right. But we need to learn the lesson that that simply isn't true. So our problem does not stem from our inability to create the ideal environment or the ideal life situation. We need to learn this important lesson from Israel in Canaan. That our problem runs so much deeper. And that our problem is an external Fundamentally, it's, it's, it's internal. For deep within our hearts, the Song of Moses teaches us, we have forgotten our Creator. We have forgotten the One who made us and gives us absolutely everything. As Moses concludes in verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. There's so many practical applications we could draw from the song at this point. But just, just one for now, brothers and sisters. If, if you are not content with what you have right now, 
You will not be content even if you get what you want. We can say that in a few different ways. If you're not content with what you have right now, you will not be content with what you want even if you get it. Okay? Our ultimate problem is not our environment or some lack of material goods. Our problem is that we have forgotten our creator and we are unmindful of the rock who bore us and gave us life. And so this song calls us to be, to be mindful, to be mindful of our rock. It, it warns us about how prone we are to leave the God we love And it teaches us that one of the primary ways that we can remember our rock as God's people is to sing. To sing of God's lavish grace and his steadfast love. This brings us to the next theme of the song. The coming together of vengeance and vindication. Now, we're covering a large part of the song here. Running from... Really, verses 19 to 43. They speak of both the vengeance and the vindication, the justice and mercy of God. Uh, Verses 19 through 35 sing of God's just judgment on Israel, his covenant people, for breaking the covenant. And verses 26 through 35 speak of God's justice in dealing with Israel's proud and arrogant enemies. Right? And there's no, there's no getting around that. There's no skirting this. That this, this passage speaks very vividly about the holy justice and judgment of, of God. And yet this final section of the song, it's not only about the vengeance of God. It is also about the vindication of God's name and God's people. And those two are inextricably linked. What the song anticipates certainly played out in Israel's story, didn't it? Israel was unfaithful. Israel did chase after false gods. Israel lived, wanted to live like the nations of the world. So what did God do? After bearing long with them, came to the point where the Lord turned his face away and, and gave them over to the nations they wanted to imitate. He gave them over to foolish people and heaped disaster upon them just as he said he would do in the covenant curses recorded in Deuteronomy 28. But one of of the lessons I, I hope that we've learned through our time in the book of Deuteronomy together is that if we are going to read the book of Deuteronomy as Christians which I hope that's what we want to do. I hope we want to read the book of Deuteronomy as Christians. Then we must understand and we must read Deuteronomy not merely as a witness to the history of Israel, but even more importantly, the story of a person. The history of Israel is not ultimately the story of a nation. It is in its finality The story of Jesus Christ. The Gospels make this clear to us by describing Jesus' life and ministry in terms of Israel's own story. 
Why these details about Jesus going down to Egypt and God calling his son out of Egypt? Why was Jesus baptized in the river Jordan and then immediately led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days? And why right after that did Jesus come into what was the promised land and start driving out unclean evil forces? Why did Jesus come bringing healing? Because Jesus is true Israel. Now those are just a couple of examples that are meant to clue us into what's going on. But we need to appreciate that they are more than mere parallels between Israel and Jesus. Jesus is, in his own life and ministry, the embodiment, the enactment of true Israel. Jesus is true Israel. This is, this is why Paul calls those who trust in Christ the sons of Abraham, the true circumcision, the Israel of God, because by faith we're united to him. And so Deuteronomy is not merely the history of Israel. It is fundamentally the biography of the one true Israelite who embodies Israel's story. And this lesson, I think, is absolutely crucial for understanding the song of Moses. So verses 19 through 22 prophetically tell of God's judgment on his disobedient people in terms of the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 28. Right? Israel will live like the people around them. You've heard me say in the past, live like the Canaanites, die like the Canaanites. That's essentially what God told Israel in the covenant curses. Israel will live like the peoples around them and serve their idols. And so God will use those very people as his instrument to bring judgment upon them for their rebellion. But in verses 20, verse 26 and following, there's this shift from focus on divine judgment to the vindication of God's name and God's people. Now before considering that though, I think you know, we really do, we really need to reckon with how these words confront us with what is, I think the only way to describe it is the fierce holiness of God. Right? Notice the language that's used. This, this, this God's sword of judgment drips in blood. His arrows are drunk with blood. His sword devours flesh. He sharpens his sword and his hand takes hold of judgment for this God is holy and he will not tolerate unholiness in his presence. And this is the ultimate answer as to why Israel had to be exiled from the promised land, which was an earthly picture of the heavenly kingdom of God. Now in verse 27, God, we see God is so jealously committed to the glory of his name that he resolved to silence the misunderstanding voices of the enemies of Israel. As instruments of his judgment, the Lord anticipates them responding with pride and arrogance, saying, our hands are triumphant. It, was, it wasn't the Lord who did this. We accomplished this in our own strength. And lest the enemy misinterpret, God sets a limit on the judgment of Israel. Judgment will not be utterly exhaustive because God insists on maintaining the honor of his name. Verse 26, I would have said, 
I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their enemies should misunderstand. So there's a clear concern for the glory of God's name among the nations. And right alongside of that, there's a clear concern for the good of God's people expressed in the promise to vindicate them. And so this song gives another reason for the stay of execution. Right? God, not only God preserving a remnant because he's jealous for his own glory, it is also because he's committed to the vindication of his people. And this comes out of God's covenant faithfulness. God preserves a remnant, verse 26 says, because he is compassionate. But this, this part of the song, as we think about what's being sung here, I think it raises a question. At least this is the question that came to my mind, okay? Is, is God a God of vengeance who pours out wrath and repays those who hate him? Or is God a God of compassion who vindicates his people? Well, the song clearly proclaims both, doesn't it? But that raises the further question, how can that be? If God is just and all his ways are justice and his people are crooked and twisted, how can God maintain both his justice and his mercy in relation to these people? Well, verse 43, the coda, or the, you know, the conclusion to the song, helps us see, I think, how the vengeance and how vengeance and vindication come together, culminate in, in the revelation in Christ. And verse 43 says, rejoice with him, O heavens. It probably should read, O nations. Okay, rejoice with him, O nations. That's how the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and the Masoretic text read. So, so rejoice with him, O nations. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges his, uh, the blood of his children or servants and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And cleanses his people's land. Now this verse has, has puzzled Jewish readers of Deuteronomy for centuries. Sometimes I check the, the Jewish study Bible. Studying Deuteronomy. Now the Jewish study Bible is more than what we think of in our circles when we hear study Bible. It's really a kind of distillation of oral tradition and readings, interpretations of the Old Testament. And the comment on verse 43 is one example of the sad blindness that persists among unbelievers. The comment on verse 43 says this. This is a quote. The opening vocative, O nations, is illogical in this context. The verse demands that the very nations judged guilty of spilling Israel's blood suddenly join in the chorus of those praising Israel in the moment before their own destruction. Now the comment goes on to say this verse is totally incoherent. The nations praising God right before their own judgment makes no sense whatsoever. Now why is such a reading so tragically sad? Because it's precisely in this seemingly perplexing combination that we see the gospel. The song ends 
with the prospect of jubilation over the judgment of God, which involves both retribution upon God's adversaries, but also God cleansing his people and the land. Right, the picture here in verse 43 is of God wiping guilt away, washing it away, taking it away. In verses, uh, verse 42 and verse 43, the, the land here, the imagery that we have, the land is soaked with the blood of covenant-breaking Israelites. Right? So the land is defiled and cursed by the people's disobedience. It's, it's covenant-breaking blood defiling the land. And yet it is a land that will be wiped clean by God himself. And this stain will be removed through redemptive judgment. Scripture will later expand on how God will ultimately do this. God will wipe away his, his people's guilt. He will cleanse the land by releasing covenant judgment on himself. Pouring it out upon himself, on his own son. That son who embodies Israel in his person. Remember, Deuteronomy is not merely telling the story of the history of Israel. The covenant curse of Deuteronomy 28 came upon Jesus. See, Jesus comes to stand as Israel, not only the one who, who kept the whole commandment of God from beginning to end, but Israel under the curse. And it, it is his shed blood that cleanses his people and the land in which they will dwell, which is nothing less than the new creation, which Canaan was a picture of. You see, in his cleansing blood, the sin-stained land of the old creation by the winepress of God's covenant wrath becomes the glory land of the new creation. In Christ, God, God avenges the blood, not merely of his church, uh, children, but as the, the Hebrew text says, of his servant. This anticipates the, the innocent suffering servant that Isaiah tells us about, that we know so well. In Christ... God avenges the blood of his servant and cleanses by his blood. You see, and this good news includes, it, it brings in peoples of the surrounding nations. Since the nations are being universally called upon to participate in the Lord's salvation, we have to recognize that at the end of the day, the horizon of verse 43 is nothing less than the horizon of the messianic age. Right? With, with this double-sided reality. On the one hand, all the nations of the earth finding blessing in the seed of Abraham. Right? Gentiles too will rejoice in the salvation that Jesus brings. But on the other hand, even God's enemies will be forced to acknowledge God's Messiah as Lord who takes vengeance upon his adversaries. And so you see what, what some say is illogical is nothing less than the logic of the gospel. The reason verse 43 can say, did you notice the personal pronoun? Rejoice with him. Bow down to him. 
is because Israel is, at the end of the day, a person. Right? A person who shed his blood, rose from the dead, ascended into glory, and before him every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him and confess that he has the name above every name, that he is Jesus Christ the Lord. All people will acknowledge him as the true Lord of all. All who trust in him will be vindicated on that great day, and all his enemies will acknowledge his lordship. See, there's nothing, there's nothing illogical about it. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we must believe and which we ought to sing. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the righteousness, the obedience, and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the peace we have in him as he endured the, the fury of divine wrath and covenant judgment on behalf of us. We pray that you would receive us in him and as we come to the table of our Lord and, and have in, in our hands the earthly signs of that same body and blood given for us, pray that by your spirit we would come to an even deeper appreciation of the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray together. Amen.